The reading for today's sermon comes from James chapter 3, beginning at verse 5. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful Father, take not thy thunder from us, but take away our pride. Thunder from the heavens, we pray, merciful God that by your word we may be reshaped, reformed in the image of our Lord Jesus Christ and take away our pride that our willfulness may not quench the spirit but that your word would find fertile soil within each one of us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please take a seat and allow me to add... My welcome to that of uh, Mr. Douglas and uh, Pastor Neil earlier, especially to those of you who are new here, uh, first-timers. And it's wonderful to see uh, both uh, old friends and somewhat familiar faces, as well as some completely new faces. We hope you have a great time with us worshipping the living God today. Um, we are in the book of James, chapter 3, and I want to begin today with an observation about something I've noticed over the years concerning the men whom I have come to respect most of all. The men whom I have come to respect above all others were and are often the slowest to speak, the last to express their opinion. When they did speak, they spoke thoughtfully and cautiously, And it's not that they were the kind of silent types. Some of them were pastors. Some of them are pastors. Uh, Teachers or writers. Um, And they spoke a lot, in a sense. And it's it's certainly not the case that they were putting on that kind of act. You know, the kind of taciturn, sullen person who's trying to be inscrutable because it seems to look impressive in certain contexts. Not, not at all. Um, you get these men sit down with a cup of coffee or a beer or something and they're talkative. But they are not uh, always shoot from the hip, ready, fire, aim, ready with their opinions to the point that they gush the whole time. They're considered thoughtful men careful with their words, perhaps because they realize the weightiness of their words. And over the years, I've come to realize that perhaps um, they've got a kind of maturity uh, 
there's a kind of maturity which is expressed in the life of a man or a woman who is, well, James would put it in chapter 1, slow to speak. And I wonder whether those men have just simply imbibed the lesson of James chapter 3. It's where we've been uh, working our way through for the sake of those of you who've been here uh, you're just here today for the first time. We've been working our way through the book of James. We've been, actually, this is our third sermon on chapter 3 because there's so much here. And we looked last week at the tremendous power of the tongue to do evil and also to do good. It's one of these uh, swords that cuts both ways. Um, but as we continue looking from verse 5, second half of verse 5 down to verse 12, you cannot escape the fact that. James focuses more keenly, more sharply, and actually at one or two points with astonishing intensity on the perils of the tongue. The tongue is unbelievably dangerous. And so we've got this awkward kind of situation. We all know we have to speak. I'm speaking now. You've all been speaking today. It's a great gift from God. In fact, as we think about the kinds of opportunities that we have as a church, just look around you for a second. And notice how many empty seats you can see. I can see about seven. And that wasn't the case a year ago. We're growing wonderfully with new people joining us. Pastor Neil remarked, today is the first day for a while that we've not had a baptism or a new membership in our service. It's wonderful. Think of the opportunities that provides for ministry among ourselves, for ministry beyond our walls to the community and other local churches, for, for well, Lord knows what will happen in the years to come if he continues to bless us in these kinds of ways. All of this will require us to speak, and all of it will require us to speak with the kind of maturity that is guarded and cautious and thinks three times before it speaks once. We have a tremendous opportunity, and we need more than ever, therefore, perhaps, to bear in mind what can go wrong if we get it wrong, and that's what James is going to turn our attention to here. You'll see if you've got the insert from your order of service, Mrs. Coy has had space this week to print an outline for you, and so I was scurrying around on Friday trying to work out how to put these in three nice, neat points. I hope this helps you. We're going to work our way through the three images that James uses to highlight what can go so terribly wrong. Uh, And so let's jump straight in with the first. The tongue, James warns us, is a spark that can burn down a forest. I'm going to spend probably about half the remaining time just on this image, maybe a touch more. So don't worry if 20 minutes have passed and we're still here. We're not going to be here in an hour. Well, we will be here in an hour, but not mid-sermon in an hour. Um, This, it seems to me, warrants particularly close attention. Verse 5, second half of verse 5. Read with me. Well, I'll read. You follow along. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue, this is where James turns up the intensity, just look at this, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. This is a familiar image, isn't it? This is the reason we don't let kids play with matches. Hands up if you've ever been in the Boy Scouts or anything of that ilk, yeah? A few people... We used, to, we used to have this game we played at Scouts where you'd get a matchbox. Maybe I shouldn't mention this. Um, in the middle of a dry season. You get a matchbox and you sort of hold it in the palm of your left hand if you're right-handed and you balance a match on top of it, a uh, dangerous bit down against the striker on the matchbox and then you flick the match like this and it goes, what it's supposed to do is it lights and then whirls through the air. And the, the, the trick was, could you light a meth-soaked meth campfire from sort of ten paces in the dark by going like this? And, well, occasionally we did. And it's really cool, cause it, especially at, at night, because you can't see the match. All you see is the, the light kind of 
doing this is really, really fun and terrible if you're in the middle of a burn ban in a tinder-dry forest, okay? Because you've just got one little spark, and it sends off in the wrong direction, and it's a really dumb thing to do. A very stupid idea, because chapter, five, uh, chapter 3, verse 5, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. It's like this little tiny bit of whatever it is they dip matches in. Tiny, tiny little flame. Hardly enough to burn you. Well, it is enough to burn you because there was this other game we used to play. No, I won't tell you about that. (laughs) That can set ablaze a huge forest. I don't need to tell you about. You've seen it all in the news, haven't you? Last few years, wildfires all over the tinder dry regions of California and elsewhere. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue is a fire. That's what James says. Just a few words, just a little thing, can set in train a whole course of events that causes absolute, utter carnage, unimaginable destruction. James has searched the imagery that was available to him in the ancient world to find the most destructive thing he can come up with. Fire. That's what the tongue is. And notice, I mentioned when I read it a moment or two ago, how dramatically he intensifies this image. This is this verse 6. We're going to spend a few minutes here, and I want to show you. It's always so wise to look closely at the Scriptures. Look as closely as you can and interrogate all the details. Because the details here are really quite eye-opening. Look at me at verse 6. We'll look at these phrases one at a time. The tongue is a fire. James continues, a world of unrighteousness. Now, this is a puzzling little phrase. The phrase world of unrighteousness, it's probably, that literally is what it says in Greek, it's probably translated literally from a Hebrew phrase, world of unrighteousness. Because in Hebrew, actually like in English, sometimes we use world of unrighteousness in much the same way as we might use the phrase woman of wisdom or man of strength, yes, Uh, young man of character, where what we mean is, so woman woman of wisdom means wise woman. Man of strength means strong man. So here it's unrighteous world. An unrighteous world, although literally it doesn't say an unrighteous world, it says the unrighteous world. Just think about that for a second. That's what James is saying. The tongue is a fire. The unrighteous world. What does he mean? What he means is quite simply what he says. The world in which we live, with which we're surrounded, that unrighteous world is a fire, and it is the tongue. The entire unrighteous, ungodly world can find its way into you through the tongue. That's what it says. He emphasizes it in the next little phrase, doesn't he? Set among our members. We noticed this last week, um, James is thinking of the tongue within the body in two senses. And here the idea of the members of the body is prominent again. It's first my body, your body, our individual being, our individual life. So it's this little flippy flappy thing in here is the thing that directs the whole of my body. Well, it's a fire in my whole body. It's the world of every every sin you can imagine and a bunch of things you can't. All the unrighteousness of the world finds its way into me through the tongue. 
And members alerts us to the fact that James has in mind the same imagery as the Apostle Paul uses so extensively, doesn't he? But members of the body, the church, hence chapter 3, verse 1, not many of you should presume to be teachers, right? Because the teachers are, so to speak, the tongue of the body and lead the body and therefore can do great damage to the body if they lead it astray. And so the entire world of the entire world of unrighteousness and ungodliness with which we're surrounded can find its way both into your life as an individual and into our community in one simple way, through what we say. Isn't that astonishing? Staining the whole body. The word has a reference to moral corruption, impurity, the kind of thing that, well, with that you couldn't draw near to the living God. That's, that's death. That's rotting flesh. That's gangrenous. That's leprous. That's corrupted. That can't come near. Making the entire body like that, your entire body, our whole community, setting on fire, he continues, the entire course of life. This is a really tricky um, phrase. The scholars have puzzled over this one for a while. Um, Literally, it says something like, setting on fire the entire wheel of generations. Right, okay. Wheel, of, wheel is only used once in the New Testament. It comes up a few times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And people have puzzled over this. The clue is probably in the word generations. Literally, it's genesis, genesis. And it's the word that's used to translate the Hebrew phrase you get again and again in Genesis. Remember when it says in Genesis, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. These are the, this is the book of the generations of Adam. These are the generations of Noah. These are the generations of, and so on. There's like a dozen or so, or ten of those. Um, the, the, the Hebrew word is toledot. These are the generations of. And toledot means generations. Well, in Greek, that's Genesis. And it looks like what James is doing is he's saying, look, you go back right to the beginning. Go back to the dawn of human history you see a repeated cycle of toledote, generations, going round and round. Heavens and earth, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Joseph, well, Jacob, and then it mentions Joseph immediately afterwards. The generations of Jacob are really all about Joseph. Again and again and again, you go around this cycle, the wheel of the generations. And what what does the tongue do? Look at it again. Setting on fire the entire wheel of the generations. And you cast your mind back to the first set of generations, the heavens and the earth when they were created, chapter 2, verse 4. What was it that set that generation on fire? Did God really say, you will not surely die? It was speech. It was the speech of the serpent that set the world on fire. And that cycle is repeated again and again and again through the book of Genesis. This is the way that evil propagates through the world. Look what it says. The entire unrighteous world finds its way into the community of the church and into your lives through the tongue. That which comes from the very fall of man in the beginning has propagated its way through the whole of human history. It's all about the tongue. Perhaps most shocking of all, Where does this come from? Look at the end of verse 6. And set on fire by hell. Where does the the spark that has corrupted and ruined so much in human history come from? Where did the first spark come from? Think back to the first of those wheels of generations. Set on fire by hell itself. 
the Greek word um, we, we often translate hell is actually Gehenna. You may know that um, the word uh, comes from the name in Hebrew of a, a valley outside Jerusalem. It's the valley of the sons of Hinnom, or the valley of Hinnom. It's Gay Hinnom, or Gay Ben Hinnom. And it's a famous valley. It's about, it's quite narrow, steep-sided. You can still go there. There's a little road going through it now. Visit it, Google Maps, and there's a stream. Uh, the Gay Hinnom stream flows down through this. It's about 300 feet wide, quarter of a mile long. It stretches, I think, southeast down out of Jerusalem. And it's famous for a couple of different things. First, um, Jeremiah mentions in Jeremiah chapter 7 that it was used by some of the kings of Israel as a place to sacrifice their children whom they burned in the fire to the idols of the nations. It was a place of child sacrifice, a place of burning. Burning the innocent in the fires of idolatry and evil in Gehenna. And then later in Israel's history when they stopped sacrificing children, well they carried on doing all kinds of other um, terrible and dreadful things, but um, Gai Hinnom was used for a different purpose. It basically became a rubbish dump. As Jerusalem grew, and the city grows, you've got to dispose of your waste somewhere. Uh, what we do nowadays is we use landfill and recycling and so on, but they didn't do that back in the day. So they basically dumped their trash in the valley. And do you know what happens? If you, um, uh, if you dump loads and loads of trash, you know, like uh, rotting corpses and uh, food scraps and bits of old you know, wood that you don't need, just all, all the junk and filth from the city, all the entrails of things you don't want to eat and that kind of thing. You dump it there and it starts to decompose and the heat from the decomposition is sufficient in many times today even to set rubbish dumps on fire. There are rubbish dumps today that are perpetually burning because you can't put the fire out because the heat of the decomposition will spontaneously combust all the stuff that's put there. And nobody bothered to try and put it out in ancient Israel because it's actually quite convenient because it disposes of all the garbage and filth that you put there. But it was a stinking, filthy, barbarous, horrible place. You would, if the wind was blowing in the wrong direction, you did not want to be out of doors in Jerusalem because of the filthy black coils of smoke that twirled up from Gehinnom, Gehenna, hell. So you can see why Jesus used that image as he walked around the marketplaces in Jerusalem, or as he taught in the synagogues, or as he wandered around Galilee. He used that image for the image of the lake of fire. The lake of fire is not a place of purity. It's a place of filth, a place of the burning of moral iniquity. And it's frequently used, therefore, not just by Jesus, but by other New Testament authors in that way. And that, my friends, is where the fire that is our tongues comes from. Just put all this together. Just think about verse 6. We've labored this point because there's so much in it. The tongue is one tiny spark with the power to burn down a whole forest that imports wholesale the entire unrighteous world. Nothing is off limits. There's nothing that we couldn't do. There's no ruin we couldn't bring. It can pollute the whole of our lives, every generation of human history, the whole of this community. And it has destroyed many generations in human history, including the first, and it's actually set on fire in the end by hell itself right now. What does that tell us about how we ought to speak? Can you start to see why James is concerned to emphasize how we should be careful with what we say. Can you see why it is so often that the 
men and women whose lives are most admirable, who are most mature in Christ, tend to be quite careful about how they use their tongue. There, there are some implications from this that don't need spelling out, but let me make um, a couple of observations. Uh, you may want to talk about this a little bit more later in forum. We can uh, uh, have more of a conversation, Q&A and so on, but let me set some balls rolling that may be helpful for us to consider. The first is a general point. Notice it is not just the spark. It's not just the spark that causes the damage. It's the fire. And we really need to think about this. Uh, James doesn't say, your tongue is a forest fire. He doesn't say that. He says, your tongue is a tiny spark that can start a forest fire. Can you see the difference? And so what sometimes happens is you you have people, you know, you're having some kind of... um, a conversation that has gone awry, let's just say, right? And somebody will say, yeah, but all I said was, right, or it's just a spark. Like, what's the big deal? All I said was, yeah, that's all you said, and that's all it needed, isn't it? <laughs> Evidently, it's all that was necessary. If you're, um, you decide to go to a park somewhere and um, you know, take your portable grill with you and fry up some bacon and sausages and so on, and the park's police come along and say, you know, what are you doing? There's a, you're not allowed to light a fire here. Can't you see all these dry trees, dry grass? And you're like, what's the problem, officer? It's just a little grill. Is that, is, how could this cause any damage? It's all contained. It's all fine. It's not all fine, sir. If you'd like to give me your name and address and I've got some silver bracelets for you, you know? It's, and if... If, we, if our response to what James says here is, well, I didn't say much, we simply haven't understood what he's talking about. The point is not that we pour forth all the ruin ourselves personally. It's that we take this rock up to the top of the hill and we give it one little shove, or one little shove, what, what damage could that do? Yeah, destroy an entire forest tiny little spark. So that general point, then secondly, just start thinking about this in a couple of different contexts. I, I want to talk about family life for a second. Just, let's think about your family. Um, one of the dynamics that we've noticed in our family, and I've noticed in other families as well, is uh, a little bit of friendly teasing, especially among the siblings, brothers and sisters. How, come on, let's have a show of hands. I want to, I want to, I want to hear the truth. Hands up, under-18s, okay, I'll exempt the adults because I know the answer to this from you guys, but hands up if you've ever, a little bit of gentle teasing for your siblings, yeah? Oh, there we are. This sermon is timely, isn't it? Okay, so, and you know what happens. The way that it works is we pick up a particular character trait of a particular person. She spends a bit more time in the bathroom than the rest of us, or... He's always a bit forgetful or a bit disorganized or uh, he comes down to breakfast sometime and, and the buttons and the holes on his shirt don't quite line up, you know. We, and, and what happens is you have one little character trait of a person and then we magnify that. Harmless fun, yeah? That's all it is, right? And have you noticed that sometimes the person you're teasing looks a bit hurt and upset? Sometimes, not always. It's, sometimes it's just, in, it's just fun, isn't it? But sometimes... You notice that it can be hurtful, can be upsetting, or maybe you didn't notice. Huh, yeah. Hmm. You didn't notice. Well, she did. Now, 
what do you do? You see what's happening? You've got these... What you're doing with the teasing is the, my little trick with the matchboxes again. Ting! And it's like, hey! Ting! Hey! Ting! Whoops! Can you see? What, you're, all I'm doing is having fun. What is it the proverb says? Folly is a joy to him who lacks sense. There's a place for folly. There's a, read Ecclesiastes. There's a place for larking around. There's a place for fun, isn't there? There's a place just for messing around like that. But I wonder, and we've thought about this in our family over the years, what we've tended to do occasionally, and we, we actually have to do it more often, no, not more often, more than once, periodically. You have, have a family reset. Fathers, let me encourage you, dads, take responsibility for a family reset. Let's just take stock. Um, if, if you're the kind of family where there's a little bit of this jocularity going on, maybe, occasionally, you want to sit down and say, okay, now that you mention it, Pastor Jeffrey, uh, there has been a bit too much of this, and this, you know, I've been the butt of too many of your jokes, it's got to stop, you know. Um, or what, <laughs> I'm not thinking about that. You see the point? To take stock, let's just reset, yeah? And kids, children, hey, listen to Dad, listen to Mum. It might be that you have to change how you speak. You're just so used to, and you realise what happens every morning you tell the same joke about your kid sister. And it's, oh, goodness, did I do it every day? Yes, and that's the problem. Because it's not a joke anymore. It's become the little spark. Keep setting the fire, the forest on fire. Can you see that? So, dads, I want to know if your children don't listen to you. Okay, seriously, great time just for a family reset about this issue. Let me talk about one other practical issue as well. Um, I want to talk about an aspect of my, my own, I guess you'd call it, my philosophy of ministry um, and how it's changed slightly over the years. I uh, began uh, serving at a church in 2007, um, as you know, in, in Manual in London from 2009. And right from the beginning, um, we sought to use lots of online media um, uh, I wrote a blog, um, we hooked everything up to Facebook and Twitter, um, and it seemed to be great. I mean, we're using online media here as well. I mean, this service is being live-streamed. Hi. <laughs> um, and there's, I, I found over the years that there is a huge amount of benefit in lots of online sources of information. There's a whole bunch of educational stuff. I read articles sometimes and um, long-form discussions on YouTube, audio, podcasts, that kind of thing. There's, there's a whole bunch of stuff that can be done which is really helpful and profitable. But what I started to notice over the years is that there, are some, there were ways in which it could go wrong and they were predictable. Well, not so much predictable, maybe. Well, they would have been predictable if I imbibed this more carefully. They're predictable with the benefit of hindsight, particularly when the, the context allows or especially encourages discussion. Because you see what's happened then? You've then got a framework where your spark can cascade into lots of different places. So I noticed over the years I was spending a fair amount of time firefighting Facebook comments. My little brother at one point, who's not a believer, weighed in on something I'd said on Facebook. And it was kind of interesting because all my Christian friends started beating him up on, in the comment section. So I was it's like, man, this is great witness to my unbelieving younger brother. Um, it came to a head, actually, about three or four years ago when something I'd written three or four years before that was, a, well, half a paragraph was cut, pasted out of context, slapped on Facebook somewhere, and a whole firestorm of 
I wouldn't say discussion that ensued. What it was, actually, was normally reasonable, gracious, thoughtful, intelligent, articulate people descended into vitriolic, ignorant backbiting. And I thought, what is going on? It, it's something like the medium affects the message. Some of you have read um, Ken Myers, Marshall McLuhan, Neil Postman. They've been talking about this for decades that media are not transparent to their message, and certain forms of media tend to create certain responses. And I thought, I don't want to be setting any more sparks. It just struck me quite forcibly that this, is not, this isn't a great context. That particular context isn't a great one for theological discussion. It doesn't seem to facilitate that. It seems to facilitate squabbles. That said, here we are on YouTube, which is great. I mean, there are problems even there. This is, we all know, uh, live stream services are no substitute for the real thing. If If you're watching this on YouTube and you didn't go to church this week or last week or the week before and you have no plans to do so, please, please email me, sj at allsaintskirk.com, because We'd love to help you find a church somewhere. This is not a great place for you to be permanently. We're glad you're here, able to, so to speak, uh, watch, watch, a, watch a real church such as we are from the outside, but you need to be on the inside. So please ping me an email, and we'd love to put you in touch with somebody who could reach out to you. Okay, and there's some things there we might want to talk about later. Right, more briefly, let me say a few words about the rest of this passage. Second, the tongue is a beast that cannot be tamed. Verse 7. Let me read a little bit more of what James has to say. Every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. The background here in verse 7 is probably familiar once you think about it. James is thinking about the creation mandate, that the awesome responsibility and privilege that we have to tame everything, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth. The, the world is yours, the Lord said to Adam and his posterity. And you ought to rule it and subdue it. And just think through human history, the astounding progress that we have made by God's grace in taking this good and wonderful world and making it a more glorious and more wonderful world by mixing our labor with it and seeking by his grace to subdue it. We've subdued so many things and nobody can subdue this. Nobody. Kids, you, some of you have got pet animals. Hands up if you've got pets of any kind. Yeah, well, so a hands up sermon today. Yeah, yeah that's right. Uh, or uh, horses, yeah, dogs, cats, rabbits, cows. That's not really a pet, is it? So, and, and to a certain extent, they're all tamed. They're domesticated. Some people do it, actually, start with a wild one and end up with a tame one, which strikes me as lunacy when it's a horse. But, you know, James mentions horses. Can't be all bad. Now, uh, okay, hands up, children, if you've got a pet copperhead. Anybody want a pet copperhead? Really? I bet your mum is thrilled about that. She's so delighted. Now, why not? There's a simple reason why not. And James has a version of it here. It's a restless, not really evil, full of deadly poison. There are some things that we don't, we don't find ourselves able to tame. And so what happens, you know, we think, well, I'm not going to go, I'll have a pet dog, maybe have a pet rabbit, gerbil, hamster, maybe a cow, maybe a horse. 
but no copperheads. Bad idea. Because it would be a bad idea to have a copperhead, right? And try and tame it. But you've got one. You've got one already. You're stuck with it. That's James's point. You don't get to opt out of having a tongue. And the problem is it's impossible to tame it. Every time you open your mouth, you let it out. Every time. Copperhead slithering across the floor. Like, I hope it doesn't bite me this time. Well, I hope so too. And that's the risk that James is trying to alert us to. And it's just not obvious to me that we instinctively take our words this seriously. This is the issue at this point in what James is saying. I don't think we really believe it's that serious. Do we? We, We're all expecting James to qualify it slightly. You know, uh, it's full of deadly poison, and but you could tame it if you work really hard. I mean, it's like, well, he just doesn't say that. It's, it's one of these places where the, the power of the Scriptures lies in the fact that it highlights the extremes, because frankly, the extremes is where we inhabit so much of the time. We'll see in a second or two that there is cause for optimism, some optimism, but not right here. A copperhead is a copperhead, whether it's out in the fields or in our front room, and our tongue is this fiery, deadly, poisonous thing which we cannot control. And that means that our deployment of it has to be um, measured accordingly. It's it's common, actually, at this point, to, um, especially when you're talking about speech. I've heard a number of people remark that... um, When people complain about the youth of today, they should look back two and a half thousand years and notice that philosophers in Athens were complaining about the youth of today. Have you seen, uh, there are loads of quotes from all kinds of people attributed to Socrates and Plato and um, a whole bunch of other people in which they bemoaned the fact that, and this thing goes on through the ages, oh, in my dad's generation it was all wonderful, but the youth of today, it's all terrible. Um, and what we're... The, the way that it's supposed to work is that we take comfort from that, right? Because, oh, people are always bemoaning young people today. Well, I'm not sure we should take comfort from it. What James would say is, look, how much progress you've made in every area of life. Every area of life, apart from this one. In, in other words, the fact that we're still saying, God, the youth of today. And I mention youth because... Um, Unguarded speech is most commonly associated with youth, though tragically it's not restricted to it. The fact that we're still saying the youth of today just goes to prove James's point, doesn't it? We're still unable to tame this thing after how many thousand years? It's not. Oh, it's not so bad after all. It's actually still as bad as it always was because the tongue is a beast that can't be tamed. Thirdly and finally, the tongue is a spring that is polluted by bitterness. Look with me at verse 9. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Here, James has reversed the order. He's got the, the conclusion and then the illustration afterwards. Let me show you the illustration. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring, here's the illustration, pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond produce fresh water. Can you see? He's saying there's something 
just cannot be about this. And what's really disturbing is that, well, the, the one thing that in our right minds that we'd most like to do, bless our God and Father, is compromised, ruined by the fact that we curse men. We curse people who are made in God's image. And in so doing, we dishonor the same God who we then rock up at church on Sunday to bless. And there's a kind of ontological issue going on here. It's not just that it ought not to be so. It can't be so. God will not accept from an impure mouth praises. What does he desire? Uh, Clean hands and a pure heart, last time I looked. Right. Well, that's a little bit disturbing, isn't it, given the character of the tongue. And it's as though even a small amount of bitterness, that the Greek word is actually bitter, I'm not sure why it's translated salty, probably because in uh, ancient Israel, often it was salt that made things bitter, or salts and a bunch of other things. You'd have these springs in low-lying places where water will bubble up from the surface, but all the rain would always wash the salts down into them, and there's nowhere for them to go because it's low-lying. So a bit like the Dead Sea in miniature, if all the gunk would accumulate there and it'd be bitter and foul-tasting and salty and horrible. And it's no use saying, well, you know, uh, here's, a, here's a mug full of that water. Now, there's only a little bit of bitterness in it, but there's some nasty stuff at the bottom, but you could drink out of the top. So no. Now, once you've got bitterness in the water, it pollutes the whole thing. And we've all seen this. This is what happens in practice when we, we hear, let's say, to take some purely random examples, a journalist or a public health official saying something, and we think, well, I'm not going to trust you this time because of what you said last time. Yeah, what, what's happened? Their spring has become polluted. We'd like to trust them. If they're a brother in Christ, we'd forgive them. We would perhaps ought to forgive them anyway. And yet, at the same time, it's very hard to trust somebody whose pure, free-flowing spring has become polluted because of what they said before. And the same thing happens far more of the time in our relationships among ourselves. And James is highlighting that it happens in the most significant relationship of all. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. We bless our Lord and Father and we curse people. It can't be done. can't be done, folks. James leaves us in this horrific quandary And yet the same image offers a glimmer of hope. It seems that James is alluding to another time when there was bitter water. Perhaps Exodus 15, when the Israelites couldn't drink from the pond, the spring in the wilderness, because of its bitterness. And so Moses took a a log, literally a tree, same word as later in Deuteronomy 21, um, cursed is he who is hanged upon a tree. The tree is then thrown into the water and it becomes sweet so you can drink from it again. So we have this really brutal passage which we are going to find difficult to take to heart. It's going to be difficult for us. And there may be things that we need to deeply examine about ourselves, our family lives. We talked about that a few minutes ago. Things we deeply need to examine and change about ourselves. And yet, even here there is that glimmer of hope that we can now praise God because the one who is hanged on a tree can make the bitter water sweet. 
the one who's hanged on a tree, thrown into the midst of us, so to speak, can purify our lips so that the living God will hear our prayers and respond to our praises. If Jesus hadn't done that, God would not hear us now. And yet he will because of him. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, the man who never spoke a word wrong and who has so acted as to purify our lips so that, like Isaiah, we may come close to you. Father, may we not go from here and immediately pollute them again. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.